Uh, we started talking thus last week in John 16 about what about this this question of joy, right? John 16, we see joy four times within the course of four verses as Jesus is speaking to the nature of a life whereby we are living under difficult circumstances, that they will cast us out of the synagogues, of course, speaking to a Jewish audience at the time, and they will even seek to kill in the name of God those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus said that in this process, there can be and there would be, in fact, joy. And so now we ask the question, then what is joy? And we answered it just a little bit last week. We'll get into it more this week. In our brief time together in 1 John, we have focused much on John's purpose in writing the epistle. That because there is a measure of controversy in the minds of many regarding the purpose due to the context of the book itself, we want to take the time necessary to make sure that we're clear about this. What is John's purpose? Well, John announces his purpose, rooted in two words, fellowship and joy, thus far, right? And these two are 100% interrelated. Fellowship is the thing that John is ushering us into, desiring us to step into. And the result of that fellowship is then joy. So the concept of fellowship, and that's something that we'll be covering, we'll see in the, in the weeks to follow um, as we dig more into 1 John. 1 John talks about fellowship in a way where we can see that definition. Joy uh, seems to be more implicit in the book as it relates to an understanding. So what about joy? Well, John said in John chapter, uh, 1 John 1 verse 4, These things write we unto you, right, that your joy may be full. And then we see, predicated upon this, that this, this idea, this idea that, that John is speaking of in 1 John, is predicated upon the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 11, where he said, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Now, a couple of weeks ago in our message in 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4, I said this in regard to verse 4. The potential of our salvation is a potential of fullness of joy. This is a state which only salvation and having of eternal life can open up to a person, but which must still be opened up to each one of us after the fact. That getting saved ushers us into the potential of fullness of joy, the potential of, uh, and, and it, it places us into an indelible path unto salvation, unto eternal life, unto the resurrection. That is it is, our, our ticket is, is punched, our, 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 uh, our, our bags are packed on the day that we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We will enter into the joy of our Lord one day. But that God does not want eternal life just to begin at the moment that our, our final breath ends. He wants us to have it today. He wants us to live in it today. And that must still be opened up to us through this process of fellowship unto joy. So if joy is something so important and so significant that it is worthy, it is a worthy motivation for all that John will write about in 1 John, then it's worth us taking the time to understand what it is. It was better than a month ago that Nathaniel filled the pulpit for me while I was out of town. And in the Sunday school hour, you all considered the nature of human emotion. Some of you were here. Uh, many of you were not here for that. Um, but we considered, the, the, the church talked through the, the nature of human emotions. Emotions themselves are given by God 
and so most certainly are not sinful things, right? But they can be twisted by our sin nature into sinful reactions, sinful productions, right? The product of our emotions can become a sinful thing, and they can also, you know, compel sinful actions. Emotions are inconsistent, manifesting themselves in different people at different times and for different reasons. For some, a rainstorm makes them feel lethargic and depressed. For others, a rainstorm reinvigorates and excites them. Emotions are deeply changeable. And I used this example last week, right? That me finding that package of cookies in the back of the cupboard can completely change my day. Much of the daily human experience roots itself, in fact, in managing our emotions, doesn't it? Learning to do what I know to be right even when I don't feel like doing it. But all of this without allowing myself to be detached from emotions, which is fundamental to the human experience. If I detach myself entirely from emotions, I become a sociopath and that helps no one. And as Christians, we often warn about the nature of emotions because they are such a poor foundation for thinking and decision-making. We exhort one another to trust God and trust what God has said above how we feel. We exhort one another to allow what we know to override how we feel. But then we come to the epistle of 1 John. And John tells us that the entire purpose of the book is to lead us into joy. And Jesus taught that there is a subset of Christian yieldedness that produces this joy. And this leads us to wonder, what is joy? And if emotions, if Jeremiah 17, 9 tells me that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? And so that the way that I feel has a propensity to, be, to drive me unto uh, quite negative ends, then is joy an emotion or is it something else? Is it attached to our emotions? Is it an emotion itself? Is it contingent upon our emotions? Or does it transcend simple emotions? Then we know that that is possible because we've seen it, right? With other emotions, we've seen the idea that there is a means by which for something that we call an emotion to transcend just a feeling. Love is an emotion, right? We, we, we call love an emotion. Love certainly has an emotion attached to it. When we think of love, we think of it in terms of feelings. But what we know from Scripture, when Jesus speaks of the idea of love, that God so loved the world, we recognize that love is not just a feeling. Love is also a choice. The way we de describe love, the way we define it biblically at Legacy Baptist Church is that biblical love is a determination to do what is best for another regardless of self-interest or circumstance. A conscious choice. And that conscious choice may include emotional affection. It's really nice when it does. It's a whole lot easier to do what's best for someone when I like them. But love does not require that emotion, does it? As a matter of fact, oftentimes love requires us to set our emotions aside to do what is best for another. We've also seen this with peace. Yes, peace is an emotional state. But peace is also a choice, isn't it? Peace is also a determination to be at rest 
because we have changed our perspective on, what, uh, on that thing that would seek to strip us of that rest. Now, peace may include emotional tranquility, but it doesn't require it. And because Jesus and John give us a very similar formula regarding joy to that which we have regarding other emotions such as love and peace, where it seems as though these emotions actually transcend circumstances and root themselves in decisions, we are inclined to think that joy can be the same way. And this is what we explore briefly today so that we can gain a perspective on what it is to experience joy what it isn't to experience joy, to understand how it relates to the human emotion of what we would call happiness, but also where as a concept and as an experience, joy diverges from human, the human concept of happiness. And what I'd like to do today is walk through various biblical passages that consider this concept of joy. And in order that we might come to some measure of conclusion regarding what it is, so that we can know what it is that John is wishing for us. And then as we come to that point where we say, okay, John wishes for us joy. He has written these things that we might have fullness of joy. Well, if I don't know what joy is, then I'm not going to really have a checkpoint to know when I am there. When I've, when I've found myself in the place that John wishes me to be. And so we ask ourselves, what is joy? in order that we can orient ourselves properly to this promise. As John seeks to direct our hearts and minds into how to get joy, we don't fool ourselves into thinking that we can produce it in ourselves, that we can somehow synthesize joy through the common human experience and rather root our expectation of joy in the spiritual principles that God has laid out in his word rather than the emotional principles of our hearts. Okay, pastor, you say this, but how do we know this? Well, remember last week in our time in John 16, I mentioned several verses where we saw joy. Jesus was speaking to his followers and he told them this in verse 16. A little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. And the disciples were very confused by this. And Jesus knew that the disciples were confused. And his explanation of this began in John 16, verse 20, where he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the word, world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. And as we discussed this last time, we focused in on Jesus' direct meaning. That when Jesus said, a little while and ye shall not see me, he was talking about his ascension into heaven at the end of the crucifixion and resurrection. And then when he says again, a little while and ye shall see me, he was not speaking of the second coming. And we know this because of this nature of Jesus saying that, uh, that when the comforter of the spirit of God comes, that we would ask in Jesus's name. And this is, when Je- this is what Jesus is citing, the time when we will ask in his name to the father, directly to the father for things. And so he's speaking here of the time when the Holy Spirit comes, the comforter comes. 
And Jesus, as I mentioned, uses joy four times in this brief passage. None of them, however, seem to stray very far from the concept of happiness. That we would see Jesus again manifest in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, this would make us happy, right? So when Jesus says, you will have joy and no man will be able to take that joy from you and your joy can be full, we say, well, yeah, we get to see Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. That makes sense. Joy, happiness. I don't, I don't see anything other than happiness here. Happy in the same way a mother is, right? When she has travailed in pain and anguish and has now delivered her child safe into this world. But what's interesting about this promise is that it's given in the context of a chapter that began this way in John 16, verses 1 through 3, right? These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God a service. Um, What am I doing here? That That he doeth God a service. And, there it is, and these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. So Jesus begins this discourse by telling them that they would become outcasts in their society, that they would be hunted down and killed, and then promise that it will be okay because the Holy Spirit will come. And it is in the merging of the negative circumstances with the promise then of joy later on in John 16 that we really begin to see a difference emerge. That when we think of John 16, if we take it out of context and we think about just those few verses toward the end of John 16, we say, yeah, it's a happy thing that Jesus will, 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 that we will see him again. It's a happy thing that the comforter will come. It's a happy thing that we will be able to pray in Jesus's name directly to the father. Yes, this is joy. But then Jesus, then we're reminded as we step back just a little bit in the context that what Jesus is saying is you will do all of these things while they're hunting and killing you. And yet your joy will still be full. Huh. Now, it's entirely consistent with the human experience that we would experience the happiness of knowing that we are in fellowship with God. But it's something quite outside the realm of a typical human experience to relate joy to a time of persecution. How is it possible that fullness of joy can exist in the midst of exile and martyrdom? And this is where King David really helps us. David was a prophet and a king. But in many ways, we know David best as a poet, right? The joy that Jesus taught in the New Testament was uniquely conditioned upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit and dwelling the lives of his believers. While the Old Testament saints could know of the Spirit of God filling them unto a purpose, they did not know of the Spirit of God indwelling them in life and ministry. We regard this as something that is somewhat unique to the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And yet some of the most poignant insights into the connection between spirit and dwelling and joy came in David's poetry. Psalm 16 is a psalm of gratitude and hope in God. We studied it. I don't know how long ago it was now. I probably should have gone back and looked to see how long it was. It was a little while ago that we studied Psalm 16 on a Tuesday night. But it's a psalm expressing confidence that as David aligns himself with who God is and with what God expects, that there can be peace. And in Psalm chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, David wrote this. O my soul, 
Thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent, in whom is all my delight. Notice what David says here. David's soul recognizes that God's goodness did not extend to him per se in the way that we talked about this morning in Sunday school and and, and as, as we referenced in our Sunday morning service, the idea that God is no respecter of persons. David says, God, my soul has assured me and I know that you have not given to me any sort of a special favor, but much to the contrary, you have extended your goodness to me as an extension of the fact that I am a saint and you have extended this goodness to all the saints that are in the earth and all of those who are, as David says here, excellent, in whom is all God's delight. God delights in those who are his. And this puts David into a place of restful confidence, regardless of the circumstances which befell him, because he knew that if he was right with God, then there was nothing in his life which rested outside of God's power, outside of God's control, and outside of God's providence. And this led David to a declaration at the end of the psalm. Psalm 16, verse 11, he said this, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now this is the first time that we see this phrase, fullness of joy, in the Bible. Then, of course, we get to see it in John 15, and we get to see it in John 16, and we get to see it in 1 John. But this is the first time that we see this phrase, fullness of joy. And notice what it is connected to. Not to whether or not things in David's life were going well. As a matter of fact, a lot of the times that David wrote those psalms about trusting in the Lord, it was because things weren't going real great, right? David had a pretty tough life. But rather, David was connecting fullness of joy to whether or not he was resting in the presence of the Lord and so experiencing God's guidance, blessing, and protection. In other words, fullness of joy was directly connected to abiding fellowship with God, a fellowship which provided for him guidance along the path of life and sustaining provision along the way. The same concept is taught in Psalm 84, verses 10 and 11. I love this passage. The psalmist writes, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Joy roots itself in the results that are born out of choosing to dwell in the presence of God rather than in the tents of wickedness. Joy is about resting my confidence in God above what I see and what I feel. Above how I'm being treated. Above what this world presents to me. And as I walk in that presence, a presence which is not conditioned upon any earthly person or circumstance, God is not a respecter of persons, then I rest in a confidence that is not conditioned upon any person or circumstance. And this confidence, which no man can take away, in a relationship with God that no circumstance can hinder, brings me to a place which nothing on this earth, no indulgence, no sin, no medication, no material or temporal security can bring me. And that place of security, that place of contentment, that place of confidence, 
That is joy. And this is why Paul's prayer makes sense in Colossians chapter 1 when he expresses this to his readers in verses 9 through 17. Paul writes, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. What an interesting phrase. Unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Continue in verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. Now I read you all the way to verse 17, because that is where the sentence ends. Uh, It's beyond a little bit of the context, but literally uh, Colossians 1, verses 9 through 17, if you look in in your, at least if 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 you're looking in a King James Bible, it's one sentence. And we know that Paul is the king of run-on sentences. But what Paul is saying here is that he, he is unceasingly praying for those in Colossae in order that they might be filled with the knowledge of God the knowledge of his will in wisdom and spiritual understanding, follow this with me, then that is they're filled with the knowledge of God's will in wisdom and spiritual understanding. They thus increase in the knowledge of God unto this end, patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. And this is interesting because here Paul links the knowledge of God with this end that through the knowledge of God, we might suffer long in joy. Now, the last two Sunday nights, we've talked about the idea of knowing God. And we've connected it to a phrase which is integral to an understanding in 1 John. And that understanding in 1 John is this understanding of eternal life. You remember last week how Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom whom thou hast sent. Life eternal is knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ. And Paul prays that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God, be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, increasing in the knowledge of God unto long-suffering with joy. Now, as you and I... Think about the knowledge of God. We rest in the fellowship, we rest in fellowship with God. We experience life eternal. And we experience life eternal as we come to know the only true God and his son, Jesus Christ. And as that happens, we are compelled unto patience and long suffering. Not words typically associated with happiness. The idea of patience. The idea of suffering long, these are not concepts that we would connect oftentimes with the happy part of our life. That's the part of waiting. That's the part of going through tough times. That's the part of hoping for an expectant end. 
And yet Paul says that as you dwell in the wisdom of God unto the knowledge of God, it brings us to a place of patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. How is that possible? Well, because this abiding rest and contentment transcends circumstances. Because it's rooted not in what I'm experiencing. It's rooted not in how I'm feeling. It's rooted in who God is. And so we've heard from David on the matter of joy. We've heard from Jesus on the matter of joy. We've heard from Paul on the matter of joy. And of course, we've heard from John on the matter of joy. Let's get one more witness to this idea before we close the study. Let's see what Peter has to say about joy. First Peter is a book about persecution and suffering. We actually invoked it this morning as well, right? It was written to believers who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They were enduring a tremendous amount of tribulation for their faith. These were, as we understand it, Jews who were all throughout the empire who had accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah. And because they had accepted Christ as Messiah, they were in all manner of difficulty. They were cast out of their own societies. They had lost their jobs. Their families perhaps had disowned them. And then you had the natural persecution that came both from the synagogues as well as from the pagans in any given city uh, who were troubled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter set out to exhort them unto faithfulness and perseverance. Notice what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Peter writes of a God who has begotten us again out of darkness, the darkness of our sin, the darkness of, of the deceits of our heart, and into a lively hope of the resurrection and an inheritance which cannot fade away, reserved in heaven for us. That when one accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are safe, kept in grace. That we, are, that we have a hope that is reserved in heaven by virtue of our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this we rejoice. And notice what Peter says. We rejoice in this in spite of the reality of the world under which we heave with sorrow. We heave with loss and failure and weakness. We are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Trials from without. Trials from within. Things that others are doing, things that others are saying, things that are happening on the world stage. The 24-hour news cycle is super depressing. But also things within. The trials of my own heart, my own insufficiencies, my own incapacities, 
my own issues through self-perception, trials of circumstances, trials of relationships, all of these things. And Peter says he is writing so that these trials might redound the way that those who are reading this handle those trials might redound under the praise and honor and glory of God, not unto loss at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So that though now we don't see our Savior, as we abide in Him, we can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And this is the point, Christian. How is it possible that in the midst of all of those things that Peter's readers were enduring at that time, that they could have joy? What is joy? Well, David has told us, and Paul has told us, that joy is not necessarily something rooted in circumstances. It's rooted in the character of the living God. It's rooted in the fact that there is a God in heaven. But it's more than that. It is actually not something that I conjure up in my heart because I have a faith in this God. Much to the contrary. Joy is something that when I place my faith in God, when I rest in Him, when I abide in Him, when I keep His commandments, when I have the confidence that I'm right with God, that God then produces in me. And this is that last piece to the puzzle. That I do not sit in my room and think about my circumstances and say, well, these things are bad, but there's a God in heaven and I'm supposed to have joy. So buck up. I'm going to have joy in the midst of circumstances. No, what I do is I say things are going this way and that's not fun and I'm not happy, but I know who my God is and I am going to do what is right before my God. And then God gives me joy so that joy is not something I synthesize, not something I conjure. Joy is something that I experience as I'm abiding in Christ. Joy is not an outworking of what you are experiencing. Joy is not an outworking of how you feel. It is an outworking of who God is and of God's ministry in you. And that means that we have a serious, we have to have a serious and uncomfortable discussion Pastor, are you saying that joy is not a regular, if joy is not a regular feature of my Christian experience, that there is something wrong in my Christian life? Yes, I am. And that's difficult for this reason. I don't say that to judge you. I don't say that, say that to anger you. I don't say that to confuse you. I don't say that to threaten you. Pastor, you don't understand what I'm going through. You can't possibly know my situation. The things that I have seen, the things that I have experienced, you don't understand. I can't find joy. Well, maybe that's the problem. Is that you're trying to find joy rather than abiding in Christ and letting Him produce joy in you. 
You're trying to synthesize joy. You're trying to conjure it up. You're trying to make yourself joyful by, well, circumstances maybe aren't that bad, or, well, there's always someone worse off than me. And all of those things are true, and that's wonderful. And you, 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 you can think through those things, and that's a great thing. But that's not joy. Joy is something that is divine. Joy is something that is worked in you. In your presence is fullness of joy, David said. Why? Because it's as he stayed in the presence of God that then God produced in him that abiding contentment. I completely understand that circumstances are bad and I completely understand that there are things I don't understand. I sit across from people every week at the jail and they say, Pastor, you can't, that's chaplain there, chaplain, you can't possibly relate to me, therefore you can't possibly help me. Thank God I'm not the one that has to help them. It's not my job to help them. It's my job to point the way to the one who can. Right? It's not my job to make you happy. It's not my job to make you feel better. It's not my job to make you feel bad. None of that is my job. My job is to tell you what the Bible says and then let God do his work in you as you let him. And that's what joy is about. It is about me doing my part And then seeing God do his. It is about me saying, I am going to abide in the presence of the Lord. Is me saying, for a day in God's courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And as I determine to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God and to avoid the tents of wickedness, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I will find joy. Not because I am producing it, but because as I dwell in the presence of my Lord, there is no other production but joy. So Peter is talking here to a group of very troubled people. Peter is not writing to a group of pampered Americans who have never seen lost pain or shame. He's writing to a group, as I said, of Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire who knew suffering. Knew suffering that you and I cannot even fathom. You say, Pastor, I don't know. You don't know what I've gone through. Have you read history? Did you read what Nero did to Christians? Have you read the book of Acts to hear what happened to Paul in city after city after city? Stoned and left for dead. Paul wasn't the only one that went through that. These people went through hard times too. And if Peter's message is valid for them, surely it's valid for you as well. And on the testimony of the word of God, which the scriptures tell me cannot fail and cannot be broken, it's my burden and my joy to tell you that God is bigger than it all. I'm not telling you that you can be free from the scars of past wounds. I'm not saying that at all. But you can be free from the pain of those open wounds that have taken the toll on your mind and body. You can be free from the fear and the resentment and the shame of what you have done or what others have done to you. And you can 
experience joy unspeakable and full of glory because that is not something that is conditioned upon what you have experienced. It is not something that is conditioned upon who, upon your, your, your circumstances. It's not conditioned upon what people have or have not done to you. It is conditioned upon where you stand with God. And because of this, every one of us can have the hope of joy. Every one of us can live in expectation of joy. Every one of us can take the words that we're going to study in 1 John, can draw out of them the principles that are laid before us, can work those principles into our lives, and can fully expect that as we obey those principles, we will have joy. Because that's what John said. I've written these things unto you that your joy might be full. And next week we find our way back into 1 John. And remember, this is the context where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Not next week, the week after. Next week's the Song and Testimony night. But you get my, you get my drift. He said, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So this week is very important in the progress of our series from this point on. Because John's success at expressing to us how our joy might be full is founded upon the belief that it can be full. We're going to be taught how to know the only true God, how to fellowship in the presence of Jesus Christ, how to walk in the Spirit, and so that we might have joy. And God forbid that we would be content in our lives as Christians if we aren't in that place. perfectly understandable that we aren't there right now. Not just understandable, but it's actually somewhat expected. Because there's so many things in this world, seen and unseen, some which we would term good, some which we would term bad, but all of which serve to distract us, confuse us, deceive us, and strip us of our fellowship, and so our joy. And make note of that. It is not just the bad things in this world that can strip us of our joy. It can be the good things as well. Because those good things can distract us from our fellowship with God. Those things that we would say, oh, that's great. That thing, those things that money can buy. Those things that bring luxury. Those things that bring uh, uh, satisfaction in the temporal. And we pursue those things and we say, well, those are good things. Those aren't bad circumstances. But if they have stripped from us fellowship, if they have stripped from us our relationship, then they will inevitably also strip from us joy. And we'll say, I don't understand. How can, I not, be, how can I, I not be in this place of contentment? I have all of these things. Well, maybe it's the things that, that are the problem. Things in and of themselves aren't problems, but they can become problems if they take us out of fellowship. And thus, if we're out of fellowship, then, then, then it will strip us of our joy. And so there are good things. There are bad things. But there are so many things in our time, our place, our society, our context, which distract us, confuse us, deceive us, and so strip us of our joy. 
But we have examples of men who would not allow the circumstances which confronted them to strip them of, the, of God's promises. And I, I want to end on this note. Jacob, the patriarch whose name would be changed to Israel, he stood on the threshold of the land of, the, of promise that was given to Abraham and Isaac, his father. He was about to meet his brother, whom he had not seen in 20 years. The last time he had seen his brother, named Esau, his brother had vowed that when my father dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. Jacob is coming back into this land. He now has his wives, he has his children, he has his livestock, and he is in this vulnerable position. And the Bible says that as he was in that place, he wrestled with the Lord until the break of day. And when the Lord requested that Jacob let him go, do you remember Jacob's response? I will not let you go until you bless me. And his name was changed to Israel because God said, as a prince with God, you have wrestled with the Lord and prevailed. You know what Jacob said there? Jacob said, there is something that I have been promised and I will not be content until it is mine. And I'm going to wrestle and I will not let go until I have that blessing. Caleb, some years later, coming out of Egypt with the nation of Israel, they wander in the desert for 40 years. Only two men got to see the promised land from that wandering. One man's name was Joshua. The other man's name was Caleb. In Joshua 14, the people were dividing the land after entering into that land. And Caleb saw a mountain. That mountain's name was Hebron. Upon that mountain lived the sons of Anak. If you're saying, wow, that name sounds familiar, that's because... Those, that was, these were the, the fathers of Goliath, the giant. The sons of Anak were those of the giants in the land. And in verse 12 of Joshua 14, Caleb said this, Now therefore give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spake in that day, for thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be, the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. Caleb looks at Hebron and he says, that's a really nice place. The walls are tall. They're fenced cities. They're, the sons of Anak are there. That's going to be a hard place to root out. But you know what? God has promised us this land. And that's the best I've seen in this land. So I'm going to take that. I want that mountain. God has said I can have that mountain. So I'm taking that mountain. Christian, don't settle for less than what God has promised you. God has not promised you health and wealth this side of the grave. That's not something that's in the Bible. God has not promised you deliverance from pain and suffering this side of the grave. That's not in the Bible either. That's what we get when we step into our inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, reserved in heaven for me. When the trials come, we ask ourselves why, and we heave under the pain, and we question God for not giving us the things which he has never said would be ours this side of the grave. I heard someone say not too long ago, and I really liked it, 
He said, we always, when, when the bad times come, and I, I've mentioned this before, so some of you are familiar. When the bad co- times come, we look at God and we say, God, why me? But how many times throughout the good times did we look at God and say, God, why me? Does he not have just as much right to give us bad times as good? When in the good times do we say, God, why me? Why me when things are well? Why me when things are healthy? Why me when things are are plenteous and prosperous? We don't say it then. We only say it when we lose those things. Then why me? Well, why did God choose to give you so much good for so long? And so we see these things and we see the circumstances that are around us. But you know, when Jesus walked this earth, when he taught his innermost 11, when he prayed to the Father for them, and he promised that he would send the Comforter and that through him they could experience fullness of joy, he said, Lord, I do not pray that you would take them out of this world, but that you would deliver them from evil. And then he said, God, give them fullness of joy. And that's my exhortation to you this evening. Don't settle for less in your Christian life than what God has said you can have. God did not say that you can have great circumstances, good relatives, wonderful friends, uh, plenty of food on the table. God did not say those things, although many of us have those things nonetheless. But John said, "These I have written unto you that ye may have fullness of joy. David wrote about it. Jesus spoke about it. Paul wrote about it. Peter wrote about it. John wrote about it. It's a lot of witnesses to the reality that this is ours. Don't excuse away why you are exactly where you should be as a Christian while not resting in the contentment and confidence of the joy of the Christian life. Don't do that to yourself. Don't try to explain away why it is you are a good Christian and everything's going well and you're right where you're supposed to be while simultaneously you're not experiencing the contentment and the rest of joy because it just does not compute. And again, I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm preaching as much to myself as anyone else here. If you think that I live in constant joy, you've got another thing coming because I don't. But that doesn't change the truth of what the Word of God is telling us. You may not be in that place today. You may still be wrestling with the Lord. But don't let go until you have that blessing. Look at that mountain and say, if God has said that joy is my birthright, then I want that mountain. And this doesn't mean it isn't going to ask something of you. It doesn't mean that you aren't going to sacrifice. It doesn't mean that there won't be tears. But what did Peter say? Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. It may be that you're going through hard times right now. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. It is not about whether or not we are in this season of life in heaviness through manifold temptations. It is about the God who we can abide with in the midst of those manifold temptations. 
Not because there's no pain, not because there's no loss, but because you have life eternal. Because you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent. Your name is written in the book of life. God has not given you this promise to make you feel inadequate. He has not given you this promise so you say, oh, I, have, I, I don't have what God says I'm supposed to have. Therefore, I have failed. I have fallen short. That's not why God gave you that promise. He gave you that promise so that there is something to press unto. God has given you this promise so that you can know what he wants for you, what you can have as we dwell in the temple of God and not the tents of wickedness. The Lord is on my side, the psalmist said in Psalm 118, verse 6. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? This is the confidence that brings us into a place of abiding with the Lord by which we have joy. You say, well, pastor, I'm still not quite sure about how to do this abiding thing. Well, that's okay because we've got the whole book of 1 John to figure that out. But what you need to know today is that joy is possible. It is intended for you if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if it's intended for you, if it is possible, then like Jacob when he wrestled with the Lord, then like Caleb when he looked at that Mount Hebron, don't be satisfied until it is yours. And so we count all things but loss that we may know him, that we might have joy. And may that be the determination of each of our hearts. What is joy? Joy is that thing that God produces in our hearts as we abide in him, leading to a transcendent contentment and peace in our lives, regardless of the circumstances within which we find ourselves. May that be the experience that we strive for, that we claim, because it's, it's in the book that it is ours, but it's not ours by default. It is only for those who, seeing their birthright, press toward it in the way that God has called us to. May that be our heart and our longing in First John. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.